0: My name is Andrew, and welcome to Dig Deeper, a series where we carefully examine the various socio-political aspects of our daily lives. In this episode, I am joined by Mark Novikov, the inaugural intern at Slow Boring. We discuss social welfare programs, how to lift people out of poverty, and the way rhetoric often distorts public perception of both politicians and news outlets alike yeah so uh, to everyone in the audience um mark is my guest today and um last week mark spent like 54 miles just going on a hike for dartmouth tradition so how did that go
1: uh it, was, I, it went pretty well um the uh the directors of the hike actually cut us off at uh 41 miles um which was a bit frustrating um Cause we had been taking, I guess a little bit too long, um, but it was, it was pretty fun. And I, I, I definitely wouldn't, I don't regret it at all. Um, so I, I was just very sore all week. So <laughs> having a bit of trouble walking and stuff, but now I'm getting better.
0: Yeah. Um, but that does sound fun. And yeah. So um, as um, re- relating to slow boring, um, there was a, there was one quote from the about section that I thought was very interesting where it says, The name comes from Max Weber's essay on politics as vocation, where he writes that politics is a strong and slow boring of hard boards that takes both passion and perspective. So could you explain to the audience um, what slow boring is, who Matt Iglesias is, what your work in slow boring is and how the publication has been living up to its name?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I guess I, I don't work at slow boring anymore. Um, I worked there uh, for about seven months uh, from November, 2020 um, until June, 2021. Uh, I guess the the name and uh, that quote, the way I I had always interpreted it um, and the way that I felt it was interpreted, I guess, within the company to the extent that it exists, very few employees, of course, um, is that the publication is about, um, you know, doing the hard work of politics. Um, which I think is is partly persuasion, but is also um is also advocating for policies that you believe uh have a chance and that you believe are viable. Um, but really doing politics for the sake of you know, making change and for the sake of like uh I guess I guess for the sake of of it of it having an effect on the world. Um and not just doing it for yourself, but as a as a, as, a, as treating it like a vocation, treating it as like as if your job is to make the things that you want come to life. Um, yeah, so I guess I guess that's what I would say about that about that quote in the name. My um, so work like,
0: is it like the David Shore esque popularism? That
1: yeah, yeah, I think that 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 definitely plays a plays a big role, and I think that's why I guess it, it's been one of the sort of like launching grounds or like homes of you know the, the shortest popularism. Um, and that, that, that started, uh, you know, while I was there, cause I started, you know, a week or two after, uh, after it had went live and it's, it's continued after I left. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think that's definitely connected.
0: Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I read some of your slow boring posts and in your post about building a better welfare state, about, be- about building a better welfare state. We talked about how there are four different kinds of political climates regarding government assistance to the poor. Would you mind explaining what those four political climates are to the audience and what your ideal social welfare plan would be in like the most ideal of those political climates?
1: Yeah. Um, so I guess the the four political climates that I had, um, one was, I guess, was the sort of worst political climate um, for assisting the poor with uh, using using the government, which is sort of like rule by. Uh, an economic libertarian. Uh, so that's when you have uh, someone like Reagan uh, in office who doesn't want any programs uh, that give money to the poor. Um, and I guess w- when you're someone who wants to help the poor and you're in that political environment, you can you know try to save whatever exists. Um, and that's pretty much it. You can't really build on anything. You can't expand. You certainly can't uh, design any new programs. Uh, your main job is gonna be saving what, what already exists. Um, And I guess the the second time I I think I called the sneaky times, Um, but I guess that's when there's there's some sentiment uh, that that poor people should be helped, but it's really about the working poor, um, and it's it's really and you really have to sell it in in a way that convinces the America that it's helping the middle class, Um, and I guess that that's sort of what the the main era that I was thinking of was sort of like the Clinton era in that um, when. You know, Clinton did what he was trying to do was make uh, make incentivize work um, so that if you were uh, someone who wants to help the poor, you have to convince those in power and the populace that your programs that help the poor are going also to help them work and are going to sort of um, engender a good society with you know, strong morals and a strong work ethic. Uh, and the third was like enthusiasm with blockage. Um, where people really, really want um, to help the poor, but there's some blockage that occurs because of the you know American political system, um, you know because of the filibuster, because uh, the you know the way the Senate's organized, where every every state gets two seats. Um, so you have to you can make small tweaks, um, but you can make important tweaks, and they'll you know ameliorate a lot of suffering, um, and and they'll make they'll make the lives of poor people better. Um, and then I guess the the fourth the fourth era i called like the unicorn times and that's i guess when you have you have the popular enthusiasm for helping the poor but you also have no blockage really you have you know over 60 senate seats um you have you know big big majority in the house of representatives um and you have sort of like the popular mandate and those in those scenarios i think really the only two that i that i think of is really the um you know when fdr was president and when lbj were president was president and uh those are very rare but when those occur you have to take you know massive chunks out of poverty and and really um not just make the lives of the poor easier but just make there be far less poor people um and and make and really like change change the nature of poverty in the country um and so i I guess my characterization of the time that we're in now Um, is that I think we're in, you know, time number three, you know, enthusiasm with blockage. But sometimes I worry that those in power think we're closer to uh, time number two, the sort of like sneaky times when all you can do is sort of small tweaks and how the working poor is emphasized and uh, the middle class is emphasized. So I guess that was the, those were the political environments that I was trying to lay out. All
0: right. Um, So... We may be in time number three, but let's assume that we're in time number four. There are unicorns and rainbow and shun- sunshine everywhere. It's like a very bright time for us. What is what is your ideal social welfare cl- social welfare plan for the unicorn times?
1: Yeah, so for for the unicorn times, um, I guess uh, the social welfare plan that I think uh, I think works best is just essentially a universal basic income. Um, I think that. You also need it to be slightly scaled in terms of family size. So the the, the one that I was thinking was about fifteen thousand dollars a year uh, per adult, and around um, four thousand dollars a year per child. But I think I think the exact number is not especially important. Um, and then I think also it would have to be sort of paired with um like a like a Medicare for all type of system. Um, but I, I think the key the key to poverty amelioration would be just to give enough money such that nobody is below the poverty line. Um, and I think that you could pay for it really any way you want, um, as long as it raises a lot of money, because that takes, you know, a few trillion. Um, but I think if you raise it, even with a consumption tax, which people usually think of as regressive since um, poor people spend a large percentage of their income on, on consumption, um, even then the benefit is so progressive because... $15,000 a year is, is far more to a poor person than it is to a rich person that on net, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very progressive. Um, and then I, and then on top of that, I would, you know, well, well, if you're giving everybody more than enough money such that nobody is poor, then you can certainly get rid of smaller programs. Uh, you obviously need to still raise a lot of taxes, um, but you can get rid of all the small programs that are, that are very ineffective um, in general. I mean, they're effective. They're, they're much more effective than nothing. Um, but they're, they're very ineffective as, as poverty programs go, like, you know, TANF, uh, which is our welfare, st- our, our cash welfare system, or SNAP, which is food stamps, or, you know, WIC, which is additional food stamps, um, or Social Security, um, Social Security income, or, sorry, Supplemental Security Income.
0: Okay, yeah, so you mentioned in one of your articles that basically, your ideal unicorn combination of UBI and consu- in a consumption tax Wouldn't be a significant disincentive to work because basically you'd keep the UBI no matter how hard or profitably you work. Um, What do you think to the idea that there might be a work disincentive at the very beginning? Like, you know, the the whole idea of like the hardest part of a journey is the first step. Do You think that might be like a trick in terms of getting people like to start working at the very beginning?
1: You mean like right after the plan is passed, basically right after they start getting a check? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there might be like a small work disincentive. Um, like, I'll give you an example. Let's say you're, you're pregnant when you start getting the check um, and then you have your child. Um, I think it's totally reasonable to think that fewer women, um, maybe even fewer dads as well, uh, would work after they give birth um, because they have money from the UBI. I guess the question um, is is really is that is that important to you politically that new mothers work to pay the bills? And I would just say no. Um, if, if I, I'm totally content um, to live in a society where people who are spending, you know 40 plus hours a week, you know, probably closer to 60, 70, 80, Taking care of a small child um, don't need to, uh, shouldn't have to, also be working as a cashier um, to pay the bills. Um, so I guess I, I do think there could be a small work disincentive, um, but I I don't think that that work disincentive is especially concerning to me. I guess is is what I would say.
0: All right, cool. Um, so obviously, like these uh, welfare programs are designed to basically help lift people out of poverty. Um, but I was um, talking with my sister earlier, and she she's worked at Neskinen, and she provided some really interesting insight into the whole thing because poverty isn't just the absence of money; it's also the absence of other forms of capital. There isn't necessarily a one-to-one relation correlation between financial capital and other cap other forms of capital, because the thing is. Um, The working class and the poor are defined not just from the lack of money, but also the lack of things like education and soft skills. Um, The the TLDR of it is basically that privileged people aren't privileged simply because they have more money, but also because they're privy to information that other people don't have, like um, education or just the connections to get a good job and stuff. Right. How would you offset because obviously um, your proposal does provide people with the money, but how would you offset the lack of knowledge necessary to increase social mobility?
1: Yeah, I guess I guess I would say that you're not you're not going to, and I think that that comes down to governing. You know, beyond I guess a universal basic income, but I guess my question to that would be. You know why can't we just resolve the money problem then, right? Because I, 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 you know, I think poverty, in the strictest sense of the definition, you know, is a lack of money fundamentally. So if you solve poverty by giving everyone enough money such that nobody is below the poverty line, then you will still have problems. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it gets rid of problems, uh, but it does get rid of poverty. Um, it doesn't it doesn't solve edu- you know educational problems. Um, it doesn't solve all sorts of different things. Um, but what it does solve is it makes sure that nobody, um, you know, needs to worry a lot about whether they will put food on the table, um, and whether they need to take, you know, a, a third shift, um, in the same day so that they can, you know, provide for their two or three kids. Um, so I guess, I guess I don't, I don't view UBI as a, as a sort of, um, like cure-all. I, I just view it as a cure-all of poverty, um, and I think that's uh, I think I think that's what it is. So
0: basically, like, get rid of the low hanging fruit first, and then we can deal with the other issues later.
1: Right, right. Like, I think social mobility is a totally normal thing to worry about. I think it's a good thing to worry about. But poverty itself is is easy to fix. And to me, it's it's embarrassing that um, a country this rich and that many countries this rich um, haven't eradicated it since it's since. As I said, it's a very easy problem to resolve. You know, if you have a poverty line, you pay everybody the poverty line, then you have no more poverty.
0: Yep. Yeah, I I agree with you on that one. Um, So you, I guess that might feed into some of the stuff that you've talked about regarding Andrew Yang. There was a section in one of your other articles where you were talking about cash transfer programs that the various mayoral candidates were proposing in the lead up to, New York's mayor's race, and you mentioned that um, Yang was proposing that the 500,000 neediest New Yorkers receive two, well, receive $2,000 a year, so would you consider it too arbitrary to basically just say the 500,000 most neediest, like what about the 500,000 in first person or the 500,000 second person, like do you think that like it might be reasonable that like someone who's like the 500,000 person might decide to make a little bit less money so that they can receive the 2000 or like the 200 crap, uh, the $2,000 a year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is totally reasonable. Um, I, I don't like welfare cliffs at all. Uh, and I do think that they really do distort incentives. I think, I think one of the, fa- one of the best things um, about UBI is that, is that no incentive is distorted at all. Cause you're always receiving, you know, the UBI such that if you go to work, you know, you still have your UBI. And if you, let's say you're that, you're that same new mother that I was just talking about, except now it's been a year or it's been two years and you want to get back into working. Um, and you, but you, you know, your kid still requires a lot of work. Um, and uh, so you want to work 10 hours a week, right. You know, in this, in this sort of Andrew Yang plan, you know, the, the, the Yang as mayor plan uh, not Yang as a, uh, not Yang as presidential candidate, but the Yang as mayoral candidate plan. You know, you could lose that two thousand dollars a year. Um, so, as you say, you could decide not to work. Um, and I think that people should do what they want to do. Um, and if, if 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 you know a young mom wants to work, you know, ten hours a week because that gives them some meaning and because you know their their baby doesn't need every single hour of their time, um, then they then they should. So I'm not I'm not a, a super big fan of the welfare cliffs. But the point of the article article was. Um, to say that for a guy who was constantly said to not be that progressive, um, to sort of be this like Trojan horse for a kind of libertarianism, um, given, given that he seemed pretty, pretty darn progressive on, um, on one of my key issues, which is, you know, how much money are you willing to give to poor people? Um, and his answer was a lot, um, Whereas the, the rest of the candidates, their answer was not a lot. Um, and I think if you are really serious about welfare issues, um, about social welfare issues and about the way that the poor are treated in America, then you have to be willing to look at that more so than you're willing, more so than you want to look at, oh, what's their, what's their rhetorical stance on police, you know, that they're never going to do anything about, or what's their, you know, how do they describe homeless people during debates, which was a, you know, a, a thing that some people were worried about for Yang. Um, so I guess- my, my view and my view generally about about liberal and leftist politics is that people people should look at actual policies um, and they shouldn't judge so much on rhetoric unless they're talking about, you know, does this person have a chance of winning? And then they're welcome to look at rhetoric and how that rhetoric polls and stuff like that. But if they're wondering, oh, who's the most progressive candidate, then you can't just say, well, oh, the most progressive candidate is the one who says the meanest things about the police, because um, I don't believe that that's 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 a measure of progressiveness. I think a much better measure is, you know, how much money are they willing to give to poor people? How much poverty are they willing to get rid of? So
0: basically, you're saying that there's too much focus on rhetoric and not enough focus on policy.
1: When trying to define how progressive a candidate is, I would, yeah, that that's how I would agree, that I would agree with that. I think far too much uh, attention is paid to rhetoric when deciding how progressive a candidate is. When deciding what chance uh, a candidate has, I think rhetoric's totally appropriate. Um, to analyze, uh, but as far as how progressive they are, you should you should look to their to their to their policies, and I think you should look to specifically their policies on like material issues. How much money are they willing to give um, to poor people? How much you know how, how much how much healthcare are they planning on guaranteeing? You know how how much of, how much of the working class's material problems do they plan on solving? Um, in a very real way, not not sort of do they do they say the right words, um, unless unless you're talking about you know their chance of winning, because then I think saying the right words is is really important.
0: Cool, yeah. So there was another part of your article about welfare where you were talking about changes that can be made now in our own political climate. So. Would you mind explaining to the audience what SNAP, like more about what SNAP and WIC are and why you think they should be turned into cash and how that relates to the idea of administrative burden?
1: Yeah, um, so SNAP is is food stamps. Um, you get, it's basically a voucher. Um, so you don't get, it's not like you get food. You don't go to, a, it's not like, a it's not like access to a food bank. Um, but it's basically a voucher that you spend uh, only on food, and there are a lot of there are some rules when it comes to SNAP, um, when it comes to WIC, which is also a food voucher, um, although a different, a slightly different kind, because it's um, you know theoretically for women and children, um, and, and the categories are you know slightly slightly more uh, more flexible than that. But um, they're both food voucher programs. And they both have rules. And the WIC program especially has tons of rules. Um, Depending on the state, they can have very ridiculous rules. Um, I think it was Montana or something like that. When um, Matt and I were doing research for this article or a different article, um, like Jack cheese was covered under WIC, but pepper jack cheese was not. Um, And I don't think anyone's going to remember that rule. And I think they're just going to purchase pepper jack cheese. And then it's not going to be covered and then they're going to have lost whatever, however much money they spent on the pepper jack cheese, you know, three or four bucks. Um, So there's also, you know, white eggs. You know, you got to you got to remember to buy white eggs in California and not brown eggs, because if you buy brown eggs, that they'll be coming out of pocket as opposed to the voucher. Um, So I I just think that um, these sorts of administrative burdens um, where you make people go through all these steps, you make them remember all these rules. Um, are bad in in two ways. Uh, I guess the first way that they're bad is that I think they're just morally bad. Um, You know, when when you or I go to the store, um, we buy whatever eggs we want. And, you know, there might be a small price difference, but every time we go, we don't think one of these eggs is free. And the other egg, which is essentially indistinguishable in the package, um, costs me money that I'm very, very low on. Um, or when we go to the, when we're trying to buy a cheese, we don't think, oh, which of these cheese is actually free versus which of these cheese will make sure that I can't eat dinner tonight because I won't have the money to. Um, so I think it's just it's just morally wrong to make people's entire lives, uh, or not entire lives, but a huge percentage of their lives spent on worrying whether the government has counted this or that particular purchase that you make um, or whether you have renewed your eligibility. You know, this month, um, or sort of all these just ridiculous processes that we make poor people go through. um, I think it's just morally wrong to make them go through them, and I also think it's really bad for the purpose, right? If the purpose of WIC and SNAP and TANF as well is to take care of the poor and make their lives easier, and then because of all these rules, you know, fifty or sixty percent of people participate in them. Then you've just failed, you know, in your own, in your own, even on a non-moral level. Just, to, just in the, in the terms of the job, if your job is to make poor people's lives easier, and only fifty percent of poor people are on the program, then you're just, then you're just failing on your own terms. Um, and if, if you're also making poor people's lives harder, that was also part of the agreement: was that you would try to make them easier. Um, so I think, I think it fails on its own terms. And I think also think if you add in the sort of moral element, like is it morally appropriate? to saddle people whose entire lives are spent worrying about money, um, with even more worries about money, uh, then I think it's just, it's just immoral, you know, on top of it. Uh, so I, so I think that there's these types of things can just become cash. I mean, at the end of the day, the vast majority of studies that I, that I'm aware of show that when you just give people cash, it's not as if they immediately go spend it on drugs. Um, you know, they're just going to keep buying milk but now they're not going to worry whether it's 1% milk or 2% milk, which is somehow a different government program uh, or maybe not a government program at all is gonna cover it if it's 2% versus 1% milk. Um, and, and it also costs nothing to the government, right? Cause they're already, they already got to pay the full price of the voucher. Um, so if it's cash, it doesn't really save them. Um, so I, I just think there's, there's really no need for these programs to still exist as vouchers.
0: Um, yeah, so you brought this up a little bit in your answer. But I think um, I, I'd like for you to expand on A, why you think those convoluted rules and red tape existed in the first place and B, why you think that the initial rationale for those rules was wrong.
1: Yeah. So I guess I guess when I try to get into the minds of, um, you know, the the, the WIC inventors um, and, and the rule makers, um, what I think you're trying to measure is deservingness basically. Um, and I think you're trying to get at the idea that these are nutrition programs and that they should be trying to keep poor people healthy. Um, and I think the goal with the brown eggs versus white eggs thing, um, or the you know 1% versus 2% milk, um, is that one of these is healthier or more appropriate for the person to buy. And they're not going to know that um, because their time is spent worrying about whether food's going to be on the table at all. So we should make it so they don't have to worry about it. And we'll just only guarantee one of them. And then they'll buy the one that's guaranteed. um, And then they'll be healthier for it. I think that's the basis for those sorts of rules. Um, But I guess I think that well, I think that the difference is, I think that by and large, the voucher program, you know, if, it, if, the, if the point were, well, you can't buy drugs, and that's the only rule of WIC and SNAP is that you can't buy drugs, then I think you'd have a better argument. Um, but if the, if the rule is about white versus brown eggs, which, you know, I don't know much about eggs, I'm not a nutritionist, but the health difference is probably extremely marginal. Um, and the same, the same is certainly true of 1% versus 2% milk, um, or skim versus 1%. Um, then I think that you've gotten, you know, two in your head about it. I think that those differences are really marginal. And at that margin, what you're really just doing is making poor people's lives harder, which I think is really the opposite of the goal.
0: Yep. Um, yeah. So another one of like the, um, ideas that you had in terms of what we could do in terms with our current political climate, was something that was really interesting, so I'm going to quote it right now. For a large portion of the poor, the government already knows what they make through their tax returns, and they should use this administrative data to enroll them in the benefits they are eligible for, rather than making them apply separately. Those who can't be auto-enrolled should be able to do a single application to a single program. And then the information they provide should get them enrolled in all the programs they're eligible for. So would you mind, would you mind explaining to the audience the, what, like the context behind that proposal and more about why you think it would be great?
1: Yeah, so I guess my, the, re, the, my, the context for that proposal, I guess, is that there's a lot of people on TANF who aren't on Snap or a lot of people on Snap who aren't on WIC or a lot of people on Medicaid who aren't on SNAP or WIC or TANF. Um, and if you take those four programs, the eligibility for them is really similar. And of course, there are some people who wouldn't be eligible for all four, but are eligible for one. You know, let's say you're in like a Medicaid expansion state. Um, you know, you're not eligible for all four of them. Um, but for the, for the most part, um, I think a large percentage of people, if, if they're eligible for one of those, they're eligible for all of them. Um, and so it, it strikes me as extremely bizarre, um, and a bit ridiculous that there are people who have enrolled, you know, applied, gone through all this work to get on SNAP and they happen to have a very small child and then they're not on WIC, even though they're eligible for it because they don't know about WIC and because they haven't signed up for it separately. Um, so that just that just strikes me as very silly. Um, if they're eligible for one and they're eligible for the other, then they should apply once. And if the data that they enter into that application makes you know is is such that they should be eligible for another, they should just get the other. Um, the idea that it should be poor people's job to know every program out there for them um, and how to apply for all of them, and that they should then have to wait you know for the waiting times for each of them. It just just strikes me as you know offensive to them. Um, it strikes me as running you know basically in direct conflict with, I, with what I think should be the point of them, which I get as as I said is to is to make poor people's lives easier. Um, so I guess what I would do is so a lot of poor people file their taxes. Um, a, a great many poor people, the majority of poor people file their taxes, and when they file their taxes, that means the government knows how much they make. Um, So at that point, I think the people, the poor people who file their taxes should just be enrolled automatically in the programs that they're eligible for. Uh, And then they don't need to do anything. They just receive their TANF check. You know, they receive their SNAP vouchers. Um, And then I think there are some poor people, I know there are some poor people who don't file their taxes. It's not as if they owe tons of taxes. If they were to file them, they'd probably end up with a net return. Um, Probably end up on net, just receiving money from the federal government. but they don't file their taxes. And those people have to apply. And I understand they're gonna to have to come into some contact with the government at some point and they're going to have to make that contact themselves probably. So if they make that contact once and they ask for SNAP and it turns out they're eligible for WIC, it turns out they're eligible for TANF, it turns out they're eligible for Medicaid then they should get all those things. And, and uh, so I think you should have you know maximum one application And usually zero applications to get on these programs because there's really no need for them if the government already knows what you're making.
0: Cool. Yeah. So I I liked a lot of the proposals that you had in terms of stuff that we could accomplish um, with with the tools and the political climate that America has right now. Um, And then towards the end, you wrote a quote, which I'm going to quote right now, which is the changes I listed are pretty inexpensive. They could do a tremendous amount of good, and I think you might be able to get some bipartisan support on them. Okay, so um, would you mind explaining to the audience who Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are, and also do you think they would be able to get behind those principles?
1: Um, Yeah, so Joe Manchin is a senator from West Virginia. Um, Kristen Sinema is a senator from Arizona, and they are uh, the most centrist in the Democratic caucus, um, which means that every Democratic proposal needs their approval, um, assuming that the Democratic proposal is not going to get any Republican support. So if it's not going to get any Republican support, then you need to have, uh, you know, 50 senators on board. That's assuming that it's going through reconciliation uh, and cannot be filibustered. Um, So you need their support for really anything that you want to do. Um, because if they're not going to vote for it, and no Republican is going to vote for it, then it's not going to pass because you'll only have forty-eight or forty-nine votes for it. Um, sorry, what was, was there? There was another question.
0: Uh, do you think that they would be able to get behind like the the sort of like proposals that you were suggesting for our political climate?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a fair question. And honestly, when I wrote the piece, I was more sure that they would than I am now, um, knowing how they've sort of treated being in that pivotal spot um but i guess i guess i'm still of the belief that this stuff is has a better chance with them than other stuff um than climate provisions um for example um I, i think that this stuff is pretty easy um and i think that at the end of the day you could even get you know Murkowski or Collins or Romney or some moderate Republican senators potentially on board. Um, I think the issue with, you know, governing via this sort of huge legislative package, it has definitely a lot of benefits and that you don't have to have every political fight every time. But one thing it doesn't have a lot of benefits for it is getting Republican support on things, um, because, you know, if you have some huge legislative package and it has a lot of Democratic parties, it's not going to get a lot of Republican support. Um, so, I mean, I think to some extent you could even just have a bill and, you know, the bill is called, is, call, is called, let's um, the easing poverty bill or something, you know, something non-divisive. Um, and, you know, all it does is do, you know, two or three of the things that I said, you know, it turns, it turns wick and SNAP into cash and, you know, it makes for automatic enrollment, right? So... I think that that bill has a, has a good chance. And I think it has a better chance than, you know, a massive legislative package, you know, where some of the leftist senators and representatives are, are, um, you know, campaigning for it and calling it, you know, they're calling it, you know, these massive climate bills or they're calling, they're calling it divisive things, which, which, you know, they got to do because they have a leftist district and they need their support. Um, But I think if you have something small, that it could potentially work. I mean, it's tough. I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a senator. I don't have a lot of Senate experience or knowing exactly what sells and what doesn't. But I think that small changes to the welfare state um, have have a lot of political chance.
0: All right, cool. Um, do you still have any stake in the game with, rego- re- with results to like the New York mayor election and all the stuff surrounding that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I... I don't have a lot of stake in the game anymore. I mean Eric Adams is is sort of uh you know he's going to win and uh it's essentially decided. I mean I, I think everybody in the, in the world would be really shocked including me <laughs> if he if he doesn't win. Um,
0: uh, uh, like do you think he'll do a good job as mayor um especially when you mentioned the whole earned income tax credit thing and you mentioned you said that you thought the earned income tax credit was a trapezoidal program that gives little or nothing to the poorest people by design. So how do you think, um, Eric Adams will do in terms of like welfare policy once he gets elected?
1: Yeah. Um, I think as to whether he'll be a good mayor is really, really, um, a hard question. I think partly just because he's an unbelievably weird guy. Um, that he's very hard to gauge in terms of like how he'll actually govern as opposed to how he's campaign. Um, I think those two things could be different. One advantage that he has, uh, and this is a, a real, real advantage, um, is that he's very hard to attack from the left. Um, I think that's something that, you know, New York mayors have have struggled with is, is getting attacked from the left because it's a, you know, very, very blue city. Um, it's hard to attack him from the left. And partly that's because, uh, he's black and it's also because he doesn't really take a lot of crap from the left. Uh, he doesn't really care when they attack him, which is a, I think an admirable quality, having, you know, the gall to not really care if you get attacked from the left and only really worry about your working class support, which is one thing that he was, you know, worried about and won in the end, you know, based on winnings, all these sorts of working class communities. If he's able to just focus on that and not really care about being attacked from the left um, and, you know, focus on, you know, pretty simple mayoral policies, then I think he could be a good mayor. Um, my problem with the welfare thing um, is that he was talking about the city matching earned income tax credits um, payouts. And I think that that's not a bad policy by any means. Um, and I haven't really taken a huge look at, at Curtis Silva's policies, but I'm, I'm guessing that it's better. Um, so it's not a bad policy, but the thing about the earned income tax credit is that it phases in. So the poorest people in the city, um, or the poorest people in the country don't get the earned income tax credit. That's what I mean by trapezoidal is that it phases in and then it's flat at some sort of maximum. And then it phases out so that the richest people can't get it either. Um, so it doesn't really help the really poor and it helps the poor less than it helps the middle class because it. Is it because of the phase in, it's a bigger payout to the middle class. And so that's my concern with it is that, I, you know, I'm more concerned. I think most people should be more concerned with the poor than the middle class. And so if you design a program that matches payments to the middle and lower middle class, then you're going to get more help for the lower middle class and the, and the middle class. Um, but I, I was concerned that his plan does not focus as much on the poor, which, you know, Yang is definitely did. Cool.
0: Yeah, so that was a good answer. And I think uh, for my last uh, question, I'm going to focus a bit more on rhetoric because you were talking about how for politicians, rhetoric shouldn't really matter as much as policy unless we're talking about electability. Um, right. So that sort of got me thinking about how important rhetoric is for like news publications and the like, because um, I I, I, there was a quote from the About section of Slow Boring that stood out to me which I'm going to quote right now. This site is for you if you're interested in finding out what's actually true about American politics and public policy, not just what flatters your biases. Plenty of people don't actually care and just want their biases flattered. That's fine, too. There are plenty of websites doing that. Um, so how important do you think rhetoric is in terms of like news outlets and like sub publications and the like?
1: Yeah. I think rhetoric is, 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 is definitely important. Uh, I think one thing that you've seen, uh, you know, it's a pretty, I think it's a pretty robust finding, is that people in America, especially Republicans, are growing more and more distrustful of the media. Um, and I don't rejoice in that at all. Uh, I think that some, I'm not sure that some people would rejoice in it per se, but they would not have a big problem with it. And I, and I think it's a really big problem and beyond thinking it's a really big problem. I also don't blame it on Trump. um, Unlike what I think a lot of people in the media do. And I, I think I, I reserve a lot of blame for it, for the media. Um, I think the way the media has talked about the news um, and also the way that the media has employed, you know, opinion writers has changed over the course of the last, you know, five or 10 years. Um, which is essentially as long as my, you know, political memory goes. Um, and I think that that's a real shame. Um, I think that more and more you saw this sort of like, I think it's called like the moral clarity sort of approach, um, which is to say that you don't cover the news with a sense of balance. You try to cover the news with a sense of truth, uh, providing yeah, moral um, clarity. And, just, and to, I th-
0: just to interject, it's kind of like um, a quote Ross had mentioned about like, You have to like hammer it home so as to leave no doubt in the vulnerable reader's mind like that. Right.
1: Right. Um, So you have to provide this sort of moral clarity. You have to make sure the reader knows what's right and what's wrong. Uh, And I think, I think it comes from a good place. The idea of the moral clarity approach, I think, you know, one issue that definitely motivates that approach is the, is the approach on say climate change. Um, When you impose a sense of balance uh, on the climate change debate, what you often got um, was sort of, you know, you you have one person on who you interview, and you interview them, and they don't believe that uh, humans have any had, had any effect on climate change, and then you bring one person on who does believe it, and then you sort of give that the you give the impression that uh, well scientists are sort of divided on whether it's occurring, and that you should be unsure, um, when the truth is is that you should be sure that that that, that humans are having an effect on climate change and are, and are causing climate change. And I think it's, I think the moral clarity approach is really good for issues like that, where there's a clear consensus and it's important that people know that consensus. Um, But I think it's gotten to the point where journalists, they write about things and they say to themselves, well, what's really true here? I've got to say what's really true, what's really right, what's really wrong, who's the bad actor, and who's the good actor? But I think the problem is, is that those Are not sort of consensus questions those are really opinion questions and what you're what you're doing is you're saying that this is right and it's going in the big news section where people expect a sense of objectivity a sense of balance and whether you like that about journalism or not that's what your readers are going to expect and then when they discover that the news section on your website is totally different than the news website the news section on another website and they start to think to themselves this doesn't really seem like news anymore Again, I think opinion writing is great. It's the only thing I've ever done. But I think you should be clear about you know, what you're doing. So I think that when you have a, a news media that is really doing something that is not what the readers think is news media, then you, then you lose a lot of trust in the news media. Um, and so I think the rhetoric that journalists use um, when describing events and, and when talking about especially political actors it, is important. Um, and it's important to meet your viewer's where they are, or at least be very clear that you're not going to meet your viewers where they are um, so that you can at least have sort of fair sense of expectation so that nobody feels um, betrayed. Yeah, Um,
0: yeah, so thank you for that answer. And um, Mark Novikov, thank you for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.